This is an ABC podcast. Head out on the highways and byways this spring across Australia and you might be lucky to spot a floral firework display. Golden everlasting daisies are blooming. They look so good. They feel good too. Lovely green stems, springy stems reaching up to the sky and at the end of them are these gorgeous paper daisies. Here, this is what they sound like. They're such dainty, papery beauties, but tough as. They thrive in all sorts of harsh environments. And uh, I remember hanging them up in my bedroom as dried bunches as a teenager. They're so pretty. Hey, Natasha Mitchell here. And in the last episode of Science Friction, catch up with the podcast on the ABC Listen app, we heard how the Empress of France, Napoleon Bonaparte's wife, Josephine, challenged the botanical men of her time by creating this extraordinary garden at Chateau de Malmaison outside of Paris. At the turn of the 18th century, somehow she got hold of seeds from lands barely known to Europeans and she filled her exotic garden with Australian wattles, eucalypts, grevilleas, banksias, tea trees, casuarinas. They must have looked completely alien, a botanical vaudeville show to European whitefellas who'd never clapped eyes on these weird and wondrous plants before. But Australian botanist Tim Collins was interested in one particular plant that once grew in the Empress's garden, an Australian golden everlasting daisy, the paper daisy. It's pictured in a famous book about her garden by the botanist ATM Pierre Vontenat. But digging through the historical records, Tim could only guess at how it came to be there. And then he stumbled on another curious piece of information. And that's where we pick up the story again today. I'm at university, I'm a student, I'm in the tea room. For his PhD research, Tim travelled far and wide across Australia and discovered 12 new Australian paper daisies using DNA sequencing. One of the volunteers mentions that his sister had recently been uh, travelling to St Helena, which is in the South Atlantic, just 10 degrees from the equator off the coast of uh, Africa, and that she'd been looking at paper daisies, and then he mentioned that had been planted by Napoleon, and that really just grabbed me. I was fixated on this subject at this point. I heard paper daisy, I heard Napoleon, and this place that I'd never heard of called St Helena. And it's no surprise Tim had never heard of St Helena, this tiny volcanic island, a British crown colony in the middle of the South Atlantic Ocean. Long gone are the days of the East India Company ships sailing there and until recently it had no airport. And that kind of isolation is exactly what the British would have wanted when they exiled Napoleon, the Emperor of France, to the island. It's a very sad story and I must admit brought up with a good British education. I I wasn't always very sympathetic to Napoleon, but there's no one more pro-Napoleon now after I've written this book. In fact, I'm looking for a little bust of Napoleon to put on my desk in my study, but that's another story. (laughs) Donald McCracken is an Irish emeritus professor and historian at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa and author of Gardens of Empire and just out this year, Napoleon's Garden Island. 
Here he was, uh, an incredibly intelligent and uh, erudite and, and uh, dis discerning individual, defeated at Waterloo. He retreats on Paris. Of course, immediately all his friends are not his friends anymore. No one wants to know him. So he retreats to Malmaison, the, the great chateau outside of Paris where uh, Josephine had built up this remarkable botanic gardens and surrounded herself with uh, plant hunters and with botanical artists. She, unfortunately, was dead over a year by then, even though he had divorced her for... Uh, dynastic reasons, as it were, as the books coyly put it. Well, Josephine hadn't been able to give him an heir, so he dumped her, the love of his life, and remarried. Um, he still very much loved her, and he, her daughter was, was there, and the, the two of them spent a fortnight shut off from the world, walking in the gardens and reading novels. But, of course, life, as always, catches up with one, and uh, soon he had to leave as the, as, as the British were occupying Paris, and uh, he, he goes to the coasts and he, he throws himself at the mercy of the British, um, and innocently thinking that he would be allowed to uh, retire to a country estate in, in the south of England. But, of course, that wasn't going to happen. Years of wars waged by Napoleon and his armies ended with the Battle of Waterloo. So did his rule and his freedom. And so they shipped him off to St Helena uh, in, in 1815 and he, he survived there until he died in, in, in May 1821. And the story of him in St Helena is, is remarkable. Partly because on the island of St Helena, Napoleon seems to have discovered something about himself that he had in common with the woman he'd abandoned, the now-dead Josephine. And that was a green thumb. And one particular plant could well symbolise their complicated and tragic but everlasting love. Got the clue? Yep, the golden everlasting daisy, Australia's paper daisy. And if you're going to sort of take something and preserve it and not pollute it with genetics from somewhere else, St Helena's a pretty isolated spot. You're not likely to get any Australian paper daisies just showing up there by accident. Tim had been living and breathing everything paper daisy. He'd been travelling Australia in search of them, sampling their DNA, sequencing their genomes to identify distinct species. So when he heard about paper daisies being on St Helena... I immediately, I was like, we've got to get some samples from St Helena. This is amazing. Here we've got these plants that potentially have been kept isolated that were introduced by Napoleon, potentially from Malmaison. This was perfect. Everything was lining up suddenly. To help him solve a mystery. How did Australia's paper daisies end up in Empress Josephine's garden at Malmaison near Paris as early as 1803 and on the island of St Helena? If, if the plants on St Helena really were introduced by Napoleon, we had the opportunity to look at their DNA and compare it to collections I'd been making from right around Australia. To my imagination, here was an opportunity. Not only had Napoleon been exiled to the South Atlantic, but the paper daisies had been exiled there too. And unlike Napoleon, they had persisted and survived on St Helena and are now a weed. The next thing I did was like, well, how, who can I get on St Helena to help me? 
Tim sent a Facebook message to the National Trust of St Helena. So I I got the request through. And Amy Jane Dutton, a young British ecologist, answered. Now, admittedly, she really hadn't paid much attention to the yellow paper daisies dotting the island. She was too preoccupied with saving another curious yellow critter. It's small, it's very spiky, it's very yellow. If you look at pictures of it, it's very distinctive and you would think that you would spot it a mile off, but actually it's really difficult to see in the vegetation. The spiky yellow woodlouse is one of the rarest and most endangered invertebrates in the world and it's only found on St Helena. Amy Jane's job on the island was to help save it, but she was happy to help Tim out with some paper daisy samples. I was quite happy to help. It's logistically quite challenging to get things to and from the island. So that that definitely had to be thought about. And that's because St Helena is miles from anywhere, but it's very special. Um, there are these enormous cliffs, you know, that Napoleon described it as the rock. And when you sail up to it, that is the impression you get, these foreboding, dark, basalt, nearly evil-looking cliffs that loom up as one as one sails uh, into the bay, St James's Bay. It, it's small. It's only around five by ten miles square. It's quite steep. It was a very old volcano. It's been extinct for a very long time. So it's got steep sides that have been washed away by the sea as well. But you, you move inland and, and you get this green, pleasant pasture land. Now, people have described it as being like Surrey. Some places look like English rolling countryside. Some look like Mediterranean forests. Some looks like the moon. And then on top of that, you've got your mist mountain, mist forest mountain a ridge in the centre. The island is a botanic gardens in its own right. It is an arboretum, a collection of trees in its own right. Because the climate is so wonderful and because of the soil in the centre and the ridge is so productive and they grow very fine potatoes there, being an Irishman, I, I appreciate St. Helena potatoes. <laughs> you get the impression, as I say, that of, of the variety and, and it's not just from one place. Because St. Helena was nearly an entrepot for uh, plant introductions. And the story is this. Before the invention of the Wardian case, that is the, the, the box with its glass sides that was sealed with putty and, and could transport plants across the globe relatively safely, and that only comes along in the 1840s, 1850s, really. Before that, uh, plants were put on the poop deck of a ship. And that meant that they were exposed to all and everything. The ship's rats would would eat them. The, the ship's cat would 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 use the, the, the pots as a lavatory. The uh, the sailors had no particular love of plants, which they regarded as sometimes being treated better than they were. Uh, I remember reading somewhere that uh, as far as South American orchids were concerned, only one in every 10,000 actually arrived in, in Kew Gardens alive. Um, now, one of the ways around that was to take the plants off the ships 
uh, not quite midway, but in the middle of their journey in the island and plant them out in the, the Botanic Gardens, uh, which is one of the oldest or was one of the oldest Botanic Gardens in the, the then British Empire. And they would rest there for about six months and then they would load the plants back onto the ships and take them on onto Europe. But of course, many of the, the plants remained on the island. So what you have is this extraordinary collection, this extraordinary flora of plants. Including paper daisies. And so back to Napoleon's story. Imagine one day ruling France and waging wars for the French Empire, living the fancy life of an emperor, and then the next, exiled to the remote island of St Helena, governed by your enemies, never to leave again. He basically regarded himself, and not without reason, as being in a zoo, in a cage, and, and people coming and looking over the wall and staring at him because, you know, the stories that were circulated, you know, it, uh, along the lines of that he was a monster that ate children sort of thing, that, that sort of level where they, that they sunk to in the, in, in the degradation of the, of the man. However, his great relief was his garden. And he built this with the uh, assistance of indentured uh, laborers uh, who were Chinese who had been brought to the island. And one of the things he did was sort of dig big um, mounds of earth so that the, the, the British couldn't look at in, in on them. And I think it was the, the concept of the man of battle, the man of violence, uh, the man of conquest, uh, having a sort of uh, a softer side. He, he, he was interested in botany, he was interested in plants, he was interested in flowers. The two things were juxtapositioned and, and really contradictory to each other. There's a lovely line from an account quoted, it was a picture worthy of being represented by the most celebrated artists, to see the conqueror of so many kingdoms, him who had dictated laws to so many sovereigns, at dawn of day with his spade in his hand, a broad straw hat on his head and his feet clad in red Morocco slippers. It's an, it's an incredible contrast. It is, and it went on for several years. Of course, he was getting uh, sicker and sicker, and the, the realisation uh, dawning on him that, uh, that this was his fate and that that was one of the reasons why he became so fanatical about his, his garden. He had the, the, all, all those wonderful features of early 19th century uh, gardens, all in mini, recreated in, in this strange little island 2,000 miles, 3,000 miles from anywhere else on, on, on the globe. You wonder if he developed this interest because of Josephine, because she had been so passionate about the garden at Malmaison and building that from uh, seeds procured from far and wide, including from Australia. Oh, cardly conscience, how does that affect my mind? Yes, uh, undoubtedly. He was still in love with Josephine and, of course, that, that he had divorced her because he wanted a, a son and heir, but he, he hadn't, his heart hadn't divorced her, let's put it that way. Donald McCracken has dug through the archives to try and find out what was growing in Napoleon's Garden of Exile. Uh, there is no catalogue of the plants that grew in the gardens. And one of our problems is that after Napoleon died, 
the house itself became a, a, a nearly a morbid place for for people stealing souvenirs. You know, they stripped all the wallpaper and, and anything like door handles and, and knobs or anything was stolen uh, because they were an artifact of the great emperor Napoleon. And the garden was just ploughed up. Five years later, they were growing cabbages and potatoes in, in the garden. It was shameful. It, it was destroyed. But there is one plant that does pop up amongst others, and that is the golden everlasting daisy, the Australian paper daisy. Why does that stand out? It is so prolific on the island. It, it, it's a plant that you notice. It was a feature and a noticeable feature of the flora of St. Helena from the time that um, a man named uh, George Mellis was, was writing about the island and researching the island in the 1860s, early 1870s. Now, it takes a while for a plant to be in a garden for it to spread to such an extent that it becomes one of the plants of a particular area. It takes a, a, a couple of generations for that to happen. And that takes you right back, bang, to, uh, to Napoleon. Which also brings us back to the Australian botanist Tim Collins and his request of ecologist Amy Jane Dutton on the island. So he asked me to collect some samples from three different locations, flower heads and some leaves of the daisies. And then they needed drying and then sending all the way to Australia. <laughs> that wasn't so straightforward, was it? No, getting things to and from the island is quite a challenge logistically. And I said, oh, have you got a plant press? And she was like, What's that? No, you know, she's an invertebrate biologist. I said, look, don't worry, I'll send you one. Packaged one up, put it in a box, taped it all up, banged a whole lot of stamps on it and put it in the post to St. Helena. <laughs> and um, and it's travelling. It gets to England. It goes, the Australian Mail sends it to to Britain. Um, and then in London, the, the Royal Mail take charge and they send it off to St. Helena. And then it's seemingly never heard of again. And Amy Jane's like, nope, hasn't arrived for months, there was nothing. It did eventually arrive, but after Amy had collected the samples. So she collected the materials and then she had a colleague who was returning to London. They went to Kew Gardens first in the UK and then they went to Australia. It took a little while, but they got there eventually. And finally, the specimens from St Helena landed in Tim's hot little hands. The clock was ticking on his PhD project by this stage and he had so many questions he wanted to answer. There were a bunch of questions. We thought, well, so the paper daisies do occur on St Helena, but where do they come from? What are, the, what are some of the possible scenarios? One, the, the one that we were really hoping for was that Napoleon had brought them from Malmaison, but an alternative one was that they could have come from these paper daisies that are now grown worldwide and have been for hundreds of years. Since, you know, they, they were grown at Malmaison, they've been adopted and sold all around the world. There was an expo in uh, Paris in 1855 where packets of seed were sold to the public and then by the 1890s, they were mass marketed and sold right across Europe. And, and you, can, you can find paper daisies in various colours. And with, so one of the possibilities was that the plants on St Helena were a much more recent introduction and are actually part of these uh, colourful hybrid cultivars that have grown worldwide. <laughs> 
Not the authentic, original thing. Yeah, not the gold standard, you know, Napoleon, you know, exiled love sent from across the ocean from Malmaison, you know, this romantic story of, of paper daisies traversing the world to remind Napoleon of, of happier times. So Tim sampled and sequenced the DNA in the St Helena paper daisies. And we were able to show that the plants on St Helena were not related to the colourful hybrids that are grown worldwide, but were actually most closely related to collections I had made from around Sydney in New South Wales. Our conclusion was that our data supported the idea that the plants on St Helena are most likely to have been introduced by or for Napoleon and have been there for hundreds of years, are not recent introductions. And they came from Australia? And they came from near Sydney, in the hills around Sydney. And you wonder who that was. Who made, who made the journey from Sydney to, well, wherever, to then get them to St Helena? That's right. These, these seeds have travelled a long way to get to, first to Malmaison, and then on to St Helena, and then amazingly back to Australia, to me. And... In this instance, to go into a garden, an established garden, which was then brutally destroyed, and yet it survived. And it shows something about the, uh, it shows something about the tenacity of, of, of Australian plants, that they can be, they can be uh, knocked around and bullied in this fashion, and yet come up trumps. The resilient paper daisy. The resilient paper daisy, that is, no one's going to jackboot the, 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 the St. Helena uh, uh, everlasting daisy, because it is established. Uh, whether you like it or not, it's there and it's going to be there and it's going to stay there and you can have as many campaigns to root out things as you want, but that, that daisy is, is there for, for eternity. This is a wild colonial uh, plant. It, it's, it's not a, a nurtured uh, garden pansy. But Donald McCracken is not convinced that the daisies came directly from Josephine's garden at Melmaison to Napoleon's garden on St Helena. If I was voting on the issue, I, I would say, yes, it is, it is Napoleonic. Did it come from Malmaison, straight from Malmaison? The answer, I think, most definitely must be no. Whilst that was the botanic gardens at the period, and it, the, the, the flower appears in uh, that famous book, Jardin de Malmaison, which was published in 1803. So we know it's in Europe in 1803 from Australia. But the trouble is that after Napoleon left... Uh, his stepdaughter was banished and the garden went into rapid decline. Probably the, the most reliable, given the circumstantial evidence that we're dealing with, is that it came from Paris, from Malmaison, via London and via Holland House uh, near Kensington. That Elizabeth, Lady Holland, who was a formidable lady, was the, the vehicle. She was devoted to the new range of exotic plants from from distant lands. And she was uh, fanatical in her sympathy and her support for Napoleon. So we have a devoted woman botanist sending regular shipments to the exiled emperor. The problem is there is no letter that I have ever found saying, 
uh, dear Boney, I'm sending you some plants, including an Australian daisy. I mean, that doesn't exist. It's not going to exist. And if the paper trail did exist, we can almost be sure that you, Donald McCracken, will have found it. Well, as I say, when I go on holiday, my idea of a holiday is going into an archive and getting my hands dirty. <laughs> as a scientist, you know, you, you don't want to be swept up in the romance of it. You want to be... You want to be just hard-nosed and the data <laughs> says this, you know, forget the romance. But you can't help. You were but, wrapped but up want in it. it to be, you want it to be true, you know. People should be, um, they should see this as, as this amazing story of love and exile and, you know, I get goosebumps on the back of my neck thinking about, you know, Napoleon and his paper daisies isolated there with these awful British soldiers and thinking of... Malmaison and the Empress. It's beautiful. When he died, they started treating him like an emperor. And he had this magnificent funeral. And it is said, as, as they, 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 they moved along, the cortege moved along, that at the side of the roads were covered with, with daisies. And it's nearly as if at the end, you know, the spirit of, of Josephine was, was with her, her former lover. Um, uh, as he went to his, his resting place. What a story. And so ends our everlasting saga. My thanks to Donna McCracken, Tim Collins and Amy Jane Dutton. And you can find more on the Science Friction website. You can find me on Twitter, at Natasha Mitchell. Science Friction is produced by me with Lisa Needham. Tell your friends about the podcast. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.